0: We could easily spend the whole quarter, and we've got three classes. Mm -hmm. So we're going to really be packing it in. We're going to be skipping over a lot of stuff. And a lot like Scott's outline, we're going to be looking at some introductory and overview material. And I won't be able to work in as many questions during that part of it. The next class and the class after that, there'll be more questions. And I'll do my more typical outline form where it's just question response, question response. But we are going to try to work in a few questions just to ensure that everybody stays properly awake and motivated and paying attention. So my topic is Calvinism, and I'm entitled this series of classes, Shedding Light on Tula. And uh, tonight we're going to be looking at introductory material and looking at kind of overview and talking about God's sovereignty. And so I'll just go ahead and show you the outline of what we're going to do tonight. So I want to look at some of the key people dates and concepts. This is the least important of all the things that we have to talk about. Um, But I think it is important because it gives you a background of where other people are coming from. And my experience has been is that if you find somebody that's skilled or learned in this topic, they also have a strong historical knowledge and that is very significant to them. And you're going to feel kind of Awkward and kind of like you can't get on your right foot if they're using all this different jargon and knowing all these different people and you don't know who they are. So I think this is important. And as we brought up in other classes, I think it's key to this is, is not just do an overview, but to look towards um, persuading them, convicting them of the, the error. And so we're going to look at barriers to unity and then I want to talk about this historical argument. Tonight we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. And then next time we're going to get into more of tulip. And so the questions, we won't finish all the questions tonight anywhere close to that. We'll finish them next time and then do the questions that I just gave you. And if we have time on the third class, we're going to look at a couple of related topics. Alright, so very quickly, what is Calvinism? And on the last slide you saw where uh, I picked up on the word S for sovereignty of God and said that's the soil of tulip. And I think that's very important to understand because when you think of Calvinism, at least when I do, I think of TULIP. I think of that acronym and what it stands for. But I think it's important to understand that's probably less than half of the problem. If you start with T and start working your way down and start trying to talk to people about that, you're not going to get very far. I mean, you'll you'll have a very good discussion. You'll exchange a lot of points, but you're not going to persuade them. And the reason is, is they're holding on to this. This is the foundation. This is the soil that that flower springs from. If you don't deal with this, then you haven't dealt with anything. So more than half of the problem is right here. So sovereignty of God. Well, this is the basic idea. God is absolutely powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-knowledgeable. He's got all authority, all control, all power. He's the absolute being. And so it becomes... Impossible to think of anybody doing anything outside of him, having any power over him, or anybody even making decisions beyond him. And so, if he makes, if he's all powerful, he makes all the decisions, and he's controlling everything, how could anybody choose anything that's contrary to him? And out of this sovereignty, one of the things that God has chosen is that man would sin, specifically that Adam, representing all of us, being our federal head. With sin, And by doing that, he corrupted himself and all of his offspring. And he did that such to the point that we are incapable of even willing to do good, much less doing good. We are completely and wholly evil, completely wicked, depraved from birth. There's just nothing good in us whatsoever. It's very important to to emphasize the absolute nature of, of both of these statements. The absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute depravity of man. Now... Since we are depraved, or actually not since we're depraved yet, God has chosen by His secret good pleasure to save some people. Now, since we are wholly corrupt, there is nothing good in us that's redeemable. There is nothing that we can do to respond to God. So if He's going to choose some of us, that means there cannot be any conditions upon the election, upon that choice. So there's nothing that we can offer, so He has to make the choice without any condition. So this is our our T and our U. And then we're going to see our LIP and our crossing. So it just naturally makes sense that if God's chosen just some subset, just some select group of humanity to be saved, then when Jesus died on the cross, He didn't die for everybody. God's not going to make a decision or do something that is of no value or of no point. Whatever He does, it's going to come to effect. So if Jesus died on the cross for people to be saved and only some subset is going to be saved... That means He only died for a limited amount of humanity. So it's a limited atonement that Jesus offered on the cross. And now also flowing from this idea, again, given the fact that we're depraved, given the fact that God is going to elect us and there's nothing that we can do about it, we can't even really respond to it. We're completely depraved. and so, But we're, we've got to be. Somehow we've got to be saved. So the resolution is, is that God's going to have to do it. And... There is no denying it. There's no thwarting it. There's no way it can go wrong. And the only way that he can ensure it and bring about that effect is to send the Holy Spirit and directly operate on each person and prepare them for the gospel and then ensure that they are actually regenerated and uh, converted. You'll often find this term for it as well where we say irresistible grace. Most Calvinists use the term uh, efficacious grace. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but it's the same idea. And since God's grace is sufficient to save the sinner, it is more than sufficient to maintain the saint. God's will cannot be thwarted, therefore the elect will preserve. We will make it to the very end. We may fall away, but we're going to come back. We're going to, he's going to make sure that we preserve and or persevere to the end and that we will be saved at last. And this is, of course, uh, we typically call this once saved, always saved. And then, if we have time, one of the this is not in the acrostic, but one of the things that falls out of this, and it's particularly applicable to us, that there's some members in the church, the Lord's church, that are picking up pieces of this doctrine. We're going to talk about the transferred, or as they call it, the imputed righteousness of Christ, or our imputed sin upon Christ. So I hope we'll have time to talk about that in the third lesson. But that's just a brief overview of Calvinism. That's tulip. That's the acrostic that we're all very familiar with. And if you notice, I emphasize this word sense over and over again. As you, I'm sure, have heard before, Calvinism is extremely logical. It's a very well-thought-out system. It's a very well-developed theology. And so everything is strictly, is very closely tied together. And that has a lot of implications. If you grant just a, one or two of the assumptions, then they can build from there and build out the whole system. But if you start knocking at some of the legs, then the whole system starts crumbling too. Now some are obviously do more damage than others, and so that's one of the things we want to talk about. Where are some of the best places to start? Okay, a little bit more uh, background information. It would be difficult to talk about Calvinism without talking about Augustine, uh, or Augustine of Hippo. He was the bishop of the North North African city Hippo, and he lived from 354 to 430 AD, about 75 years. And I think this is important to understand. He was raised a Christian. His mother's name was Monica. But pretty shortly, he turned to a very hedonistic, pagan lifestyle. And he became what was known as a Manichaeanism. Or he adopted Manichaeism, And he was a follower of uh, the guy Manny. And then later, he uh, eventually became uh, a Catholic, converted to true Christianity in about 387. So um, the thing that's interesting to me is is during this time he lived a very as i said hedonistic lifestyle he had a mistress for about 13 years had a son by her and then her his mother was concerned that he was kind of moving in the wrong directions of society so she arranged a different marriage and had him break off that relationship and but this girl wasn't old enough and so while he was waiting he had another mistress and then he had another mistress and Anyway, uh, sexual activity was a a difficult problem for Augustine, and he wrote about it pretty extensively in his own confessions. He's considered a saint, a pillar, and a doctor of the Catholic Church. And some people consider him second to Paul. And this is very important because in the Catholic mindset, Augustine is not that much different than Paul. Whatever he writes is, is almost as valuable as what Paul or Peter may have written. So uh, he has tremendous amount of authority, and uh, people coming from the Reformed faith may share some of that same feeling. Now, what's some of the things he taught? Well, he was a very keen advocate of original sin, man's depravity, and then because of that, babies that are born into the world, they're depraved. We don't want them to go to hell when they're born what if something happens to them, so infants have to be baptized. And then, of course, he was an advocate of efficacious grace, predestination, and God's supremacy. Now, as I mentioned earlier, he was very influential. But the other thing is he was highly inconsistent. Uh, he had a lot of problems even within his own teaching and his own thoughts. And you see that as he wrote over time, they, in the very beginning, he, he had the strong influence of Manichaeism. And that's important because that's closely related to Gnosticism. And so they would teach, uh, they would teach key things like the flesh is inherently evil. Sound familiar? And they would teach, uh, and he wouldn't get into this so much, but they would also teach about the dualism of nature. And then they would also strongly assert, because of this neoplatonic influence he had through this chain, he would strongly insert the supremacy of the supreme being. That there is no fault, there is no will, that he is supreme, and he's so supreme it's hard to even classify him as being good. He's above reason. uh, And so to even talk to him or interact with him, you have to do so in an emotional ecstatic standpoint. So you can see just from that that there's a lot of influence in his beliefs. That even though he converted to Christianity, he still had some ties back to these old doctrines that are are carried forward. Alright, another name that you will hear. In fact, if you talk with a, a Calvinist that knows some of his history, he will call you a Pelagian. He will say, well, and he will not use that in a nice way. He will use that is in a pejorative term uh, to speak bad of you. It's synonymous with heresy, and so you would be a heretic, you would be a liberal, you would be a Pelagian. Now, who was Pelagius? Well, he lived. He was actually born roughly the same year and uh, and died a little bit before Augustine. He was a strict ascetic, and what that means is, is he emphasized. Uh, getting rid of all the luxuries of life. In fact, he associated uh, sexual relationship even in the marriage as being a sin. So he just... And this was very common in that day, that kind of belief. But he also emphasized man's free will and man's responsibility. And he first started running into Augustine because the people that he ran into that were taught by Augustine had very lax, he thought, lax morals and lax beliefs. And he thought it was because they blamed their sin... And their lack of spiritual growth on the fact that they couldn't help it. It's just part of their nature, it's just part of their flesh. And so he began to teach against this. Now, unfortunately, we really don't know what Pelagius thought. All of his writings were lost, more or less. And all we have was what was quoted by his archenemy, Augustine. So there's a little suspicion as far as exactly what Pelagius believed. Now, we're not interested in exonerating that man. Uh, we're more concerned about how people see him in that doctrine and how it may relate. So what do people think of him? Well, he disavowed inherited depravity. He said that man was basically good. Not depraved, but basically good. Okay, so far so good. But he believed that Jesus' death was exemplary. That it was not atoning. In other words, there was no real connection to Jesus' Sacrifice and his death in our salvation. It didn't do anything to obtain our salvation. That he was just setting a good example that we should live like him. And he taught the responsibility of choosing good apart from grace. So he, it seems, at least this is the, the connotation that's placed with him, is that man could obtain salvation apart from God. That he could, of his own will and his own determination, do what was right. And obtain salvation, and so you can see where the Calvinists really don't like that idea at all. That this is going to the other extreme, where man has, is de-emphasizing God's grace. Now, it's not clear whether or not he actually really taught that, but that's what people think. And when you go to speak to people, that's what they're going to—that's the category they're going to put you in. And incidentally, he was condemned as a heretic after his death in 431 A.D. And as long as he was alive. He was able to speak to popes and exonerate himself. But once he was dead and was unable to defend himself, Augustine had him condemned as a heretic. And uh, the victors write history. So that's how it happened. Now, that, when Augustine's beliefs, after, that, after uh, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic, that became the official position of the church. And that's the way it was all the way through time. Uh, up until John Calvin he's probably the next notable person we want to focus on and of course the beliefs that we're talking about are named after him so he lived in 1509 1564 he was French but he ultimately ended up in Geneva and that became kind of his headquarters and that was his stronghold now he was converted in 1533 and three years later at the age of 27 he wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion and that is the foundation of, of Calvinism and his beliefs And he did that at the age of 27 and after only being a Christian for three years. And later he would say that he hadn't changed in any... um, He had not changed his beliefs in any substantial way since that time. Uh, He was key to the Protestant Reformation. And the Presbyterian Church and the Reformed Churches looked to him as like their father and their spokesman and their representative. And what he did is he crystallized Augustine's views. And he formalized a more self-consistent theology. So he worked on it, and where Augustine had a little bit of this and a little bit of that, he he uh, centralized and crystallized it into this one part and made it more self-consistent. But it also made it more radical, and it made it in many ways uh, less appealing. And so, um, so he expanded his institutes, but he never revised his teaching. He was a prolific writer and speaker. And his teaching was used as a basis for the Puritans' Westminster Confession of Faith, which is used by the Presbyterians. And I mention that because you'll see a lot of quotes from that. And uh, he didn't write that. The Puritans did. And the Presbyterians adopted it, but his teaching was the foundation for that. Now, as he lived in Geneva, he used the government and influenced them to enforce his doctrines. Uh, There was probably the most notable case is Michael Servetus. He was killed, he was martyred at uh, Calvin's uh, prosecution and he persecuted other heretics uh, but this was very commonplace this is what Luther did, this is what the Catholics had done, this is nothing unusual for his time, but I think that's notable. Now there are a few redeemable things about him that he taught that we should use the Bible only it's the Latin term sola scriptura and he also believed in the regulative principle versus the normative and what that means is you should not do something uh, unless it's authorized. And that's what he believed. Now Luther and all the people that he influenced, they took the other position. You can do whatever you want as long as it's not forbidden. So he and Luther had a, a parting of the ways on that point. So he had some redeemable you know, good things to say about him. Uh, now interesting thing is along with Augustine and Aquinas that we'll talk about later, uh, he was, he's identified as orthodoxy itself. He is the embodiment of it. If he said it, if Augustine said it, if Aquinas said it, that you can't say it any better than they did. They are right and there's no way to improve upon that. That's the general view that you'll run into often case. Now, Jacobius Arminius, he was a Dutchman and he lived 1560 to 1609. He was four years old when Calvin died. So he, he, was, he came along a little bit later. In fact, he was raised as a Calvinist. He went to the school that Calvin uh, created and he was taught by Theodore Beza who was Calvin's successor. And uh, he came to his beliefs because he was called upon to debate someone who was bringing these strange new ideas. And doing the debating, he realized some inconsistencies and he started revising his own beliefs. Now, he actually died in some ways kind of at a young age. And, and he had a very strong influence, but uh, probably the greatest influence came from the people that came after him uh, where the, the year after they, that he died, they wrote up this list of grievances, this remonstrance. And so they became known as the remonstrance. And their main points were is they did agree with Calvin that, yes, we are born in a, an original sin, depraved, but they believed that the predestination was conditional and that God intended or wanted everybody to be saved so they believed in universal atonement even though the application of that may have not been universal and they believed that man cannot exercise saving faith so grace was necessary but it was still resistible and they weren't real sure but they finally fell on the side of yeah man can fall from grace so they held on to some of the foundations of Calvinism but yet in a lot of the application they went the other way so there was some. You can see there's some logical difficulties in their own beliefs, and the people uh, they didn't take this name up, whether it was remonstrance um, or or Armenian. But the Armenians are people that believe similar to this this belief system. And uh, again, this is generally used as a pejorative term, as a way of speaking bad of you. Are you an Armenian? Uh, and so this is never said in a good way. Now, for the Calvinists. It's one or the other. You're either a Calvinist or you're an Armenian. So even if you don't agree with Arminius, it doesn't matter. That's what they're going to call you. And um, he was eventually labeled as an anathema and he was expelled from the Netherlands at the Synod of Dort in 1618 to 1619. So again, the, um, there was a political influence in there and again, the victor's write history. So, uh, Pelagius and Arminius, these guys were heretics, and if you say anything remotely like them that's not Calvinistic or Augustine uh, agreement, that's what you'll be labeled. So, some other notable people, Thomas Aquinas uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, he wrote the Summa Theologica, and from 1225 to 1274 is when he lived. He backed up everything that Augustine said, but he even worked on it even more. Uh, he had a lot of good things to say but unfortunately on this point uh, he did not help the truth and he actually it's, it's a toss up between whether he or Augustine is the most influential person in the Catholic religion Martin Luther's also important he came a little bit before Calvin 1483 to 1546 most people will look at him as beginning the Protestant Reformation when he nailed his 95 thesis on the, the cathedral door and then he taught this idea of justification by faith alone and really emphasized that and Calvin picked up with that and really added that to uh, to his belief system. Theodore Beza, we mentioned him already. He was Calvin's successor and he really kind of organized the system a lot more and became more influential in its propagation. Uh, Louis Molina, he was a Catholic who tried to reconcile these things. Arminius' successor was Simon Episcopus. And he was the one that kind of drove the uh, remonstrance. And interestingly, I think I think Scott mentioned this that John and Charles Wesley they were Armenian, and so they followed this belief system. Of course, they were instrumental in founding the Methodist Church. And a name that you another name you will hear. This is a modern person, R.C. Sproul. He's a modern theologian and a strong proponent of hyper-Calvinism, and he's the founder and chairman of Ligonier Ministries. So these are different people that you may run into. And actually, you can go to Wikipedia and just learn a lot more about things. This is information that you can uh, delve into if you really want to get into it more. So let's talk about uh, some barriers to unity. Where do we start? Obviously, it's going to be in the Gospel. We're not going to try to bring in anything else. But if you think about the different sermons that Paul and Peter made, depending on who they were trying to teach, they would start in a different place. Uh, You think about when Paul was speaking to the pagans. Well, he didn't start with the Old Testament. Uh, but yet, when he was speaking to the Jews they had just murdered Jesus and Peter was, that's where he started. So, where do we start with these people? I think one of the important things to notice is to identify the key barriers between us and them. I and mean, the key being the fundamental ones and tear them down. The barriers are uh, incredibly, uh, there's many of them. So, there's three things I want to look at. Motivational barriers, hermeneutical barriers and communicative barriers. And one thing I want to mention, I believe there's a link between postmodernism, emotionalism, and this irresistible grace, the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. And the idea being is that even though Calvin was a very rational person, he opened the door by uh, pushing this idea of the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. Modern people today who have given up on the idea of rationalism and are feeling their way through life and feeling their way through religion... Well, what they feel, it's very easy for them to associate with the Holy Spirit and say, "Well, what I'm feeling must be from God. It must be right. It's from the Holy Spirit. This is a direct operation of the Holy Spirit on me." And so they become their feelings become a god to themselves. And I think there is this influence that's working its way in that's responsible for that. So I think you have to be aware of that that many of the people that you work with are going to find it they're going to feel their way through things instead of reasoning their way through things. Alright, so we had a couple questions I want to go ahead and pick up. So is Calvinism important for us and others to study? Why or why not? This is question number one. What do you think? <clears throat> Everybody wake it's in up. Water. It's in water that's pervasive. It's pervasive. Other reasons you can think of? It's false teaching. We're going to do what we can to make sure that that's not So we're going to contend earnestly for the truth, for the faith. And they teach what's necessary to be saved. And I think that, that is a fundamental point. And Eric brought this up in the last class. That we have to in some way communicate to these people that there is a difference over what it takes to be saved. So this is ex- extremely personal and uh, foundation or, or fundamental to who we are and whether or not we're going to even make it to heaven. Alright, question number three. So how would you answer this idea? Calvin's theology has been the definition of orthodoxy since the early church. How can you believe such a heretical, liberal view? And you will get that level of disdain. Potentially, not always. Can you re-ask the question? Is that the same? That's not the same? It's question number three. Oh, so at lesson number 20. I gave. You may have two sets of handouts. Oh, so we're doing 20 tonight and 21 question next time. Here's 20. let me ask it how would you answer Calvin's theology has been the default definition of orthodoxy since the early church how would you believe such a heretical liberal view not taught in the Bible what is our standard is it history or is it is it God's word the scripture the scripture well that's not going to be so easily accepted because emotionally there is 1500 years worth of evidence in their mind 1500 years of very smart people who are going the other direction. There's Augustine and Aquinas and all these people that are giants in their mind. And who are you? That's what you're going to be facing. But they're just men. But they're just men. And one thing that I've used, though, not successfully, is the history that you just mentioned to show that that Calvinism didn't spring from an an honest person who was a good person, Augustine Mm -hmm. particularly, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the foundation of it, who just happened to be mistaken. I mean, so I point out the hypocrisies in the lives of John Calvin was a murderer and, and, mm-hmm. and, and that strong language but he put people to death mm-hmm. who disagreed with him and uh, Augustine was a sexually immoral person mm-hmm. uh, and that was their lifestyle so I, mm-hmm. I've used that again not with I, I, think that's, I, th- I think that is worth bringing up I think you really have to do two points first of all their argument is fundamentally wrong even if you work off their foundation but is that the right foundation and I think you have to press both of those points alright and we'll get to that a little bit more as we go so let's talk about some of these motivational barriers there's this belief and this is this has been my experience and so I, I say that not to uh, lend credibility to what I'm saying but actually diminish from it uh, your experience may be completely different uh, by no means have I talked to some kind of statistic sample of Calvinists uh, only just a handful of people so what you may find may be very different than this but what I run into is there's this belief that we cannot understand God's wisdom, including His revealed nature in our justification. There's this idea that there there's these contradictions. There's this mystery in how we're saved, and that's okay. It, it can't be understood. You can't understand it. We can't begin to argue about it. And so, really, our differences are just our opinions. They're academic, and they really don't pertain to our salvation. But how do they how do they get around the, the Bible's explanation? of it? Paul says that it's given to us so that we will know. And, and, and it makes it very clear that, that if you study and read it, that you will know it. That, that presents yeah. a real problem for them. And so uh, one of the passages I have here is Ephesians 3, 3-5. Really what this is saying, in essence, is this is a claiming that God failed to demonstrate what He intended to demonstrate and to teach us what He intended to teach us. Ephesians three three to five says when you read you can understand and what they're saying is is no you cannot I mean this comes in clear contradiction with this passage and this one in Ephesians three or excuse me Romans three twenty four to twenty six I mentioned this one the other night I, I think this is very key here because it says that God intended for the cross to serve as a means of demonstrating His own justice His righteousness and that we might be just, and that we may be justified by Him. So he, this is not some mysterious, deep, dark thing that God really didn't intend for us to understand. He put this at the forefront and said, this is who I am. And I want you to know who I am. This is an example. This is my nature. This is how you're saved. This is how you are to be. So one of the most fundamental and key points that God said, I want you to understand it. They're saying, no, you can't. So this is not some esoteric thing that we're having difficulty understanding. This is a key foundation, a simple thing that God deliberately tried to teach and tried to explain. So if we have trouble with it, who are we casting blame and dispersion on? It's God. Another thing I think this does is denies the rational nature of God and of objective truth. Again, this gets back to this emotional nebulous. How do you know you're right? How do we know we're wrong? Lots of passages where God talks about us, you know, reasoning together and uh, it being very logical being saved by truth so lots of passages against that it embraces the vision which God clearly condemns we talked about this earlier and as Brother Jackson brought out there's a very personal motivation here we're talking about the foundation of our Christianity of our salvation what do we have to do to be saved? baptism I and mean, that's a very key point point. and in Hebrews 6 1-2 I think this goes back to this point up here the writer of Hebrews said this is one of the elementary principles. This is something that should be obvious. It's something that should, everybody should be able to understand. If baptism is becoming a very difficult point and we're having to work very hard to make the Scriptures say something they don't clearly say, then we're, not, we're going in the wrong direction. It's supposed to be very easily understood or so the writer of Hebrews says. Alright. And, and I think these are things that when I'm talking to people, I look for them to be... They're dropping clues... To, and they're giving me open doors where they believe these things. And as soon as I see one of these, I pounce on them. And as Eric said, it's not much success, but at least that's what I've tried to do. Alright, there's some hermeneutical barriers. This is, uh, I call it the Google or the keyword hermeneutic. If you see a word in a verse that pertains to what you believe, it must teach what you believe. If there's a word, it must be right. If I see election, if I see predestination in a verse, then it must be true as I believe it. So that's a hermeneutic i run into a lot. And this idea of self-consistency. If I can weave a story for you that is consistent with itself, if I can explain what I believe to you and you understand it and it makes sense, then it must be right. That seems to be a very common mode of operation. Um, I think there's another problem of exegesis versus eisegesis. What does the text say versus putting meaning into the text? And you run into this a lot where people have this theology and they're trying to shoehorn it back into Scripture. And so they have a lot of assumptions, prejudice, presumption, and ambiguity that they deal with and and somehow they get their belief system out of this. And so I cannot emphasize this enough. As you're interpreting the passages with them, look for the assumptions. Look for the presumption. And 99% of the passages will go away. They're built on assumption or ambiguity. And I want to spend a minute talking about this arrogance that you seem to run into. Not in a very hateful or mean way, but there's something there where they're holding themselves aloof from you. They have some advantage over you. And it's this historical claim of orthodoxy, whereas you are the historical heretic. Alright, so answers to dealing with these problems. Well, you've got to look at the context. Just because you see this keyword, that can't be necessarily proving what you say. Uh, The sum or the whole of God's word is truth. You have to put it all together. Truth is wholly self-consistent, yes. But it's also consistent with the Bible. Uh, Titus talks about sound doctrine. God who cannot lie. And that the elders who would be able to convict those who contradict. They either contradict themselves or they contradict Scripture. So what we need to do is look at what Jesus said. You do greatly err, not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. We have to learn the whole Scriptures. Look how Jesus answered people. It is written, have you not read And then I think we have to do what Calvin preached. We have to do sola scriptura, go with just the Bible alone. That's what he said. It was a great idea, and we need to put it into practice. And then the history, it's clouded. It's debatable. There's some argument there. But what is really our standard? It's the Bible, and it's very clear. And that's ultimately what we're going to be judged by. I think there's communicative barriers. In other words, there's things that get in the way when you're just talking to people. Part of the problem is is that on both sides and this I'm speaking of probably you definitely me, and then whoever you're working with you're not going to understand everything they really understand in their belief, and they're definitely not going to understand what you believe. So you've got to realize that, um, and oftentimes, because of that, you find each other attacking a straw man, each other is throwing arguments at something that's not really what you believe, so it's not really applicable. There's going to be a variance in definition of jargon. You're going to be using words different ways. And so you have to realize that there is a huge body of relevant scriptures. Uh, whether or not they're really relevant is up for debate, but there's a lot of scriptures that can be brought in. And then there's grossly incompatible views. And in my experience has been is that people believe on the other side when they're talking to me and they say, oh, you know, there's not that much difference. And as we talk more and more and more, like, oh, there's a huge difference. And so uh, you know, be aware of that. So realize there's a massive variance in belief. There's hyper-Calvinists, three-point Calvinists, four-point Calvinists. Calvin would be a hyper-Calvinist. In other words, everything he said, that's what they're going to hold to. The four-point and the three-point Calvinists, they're going to start backing off on different points. And you may hear the term neo-Calvinists. It's the same idea. People who've taken bits and pieces they wanted and let go of the more unpleasant uh, points of Calvinism. So patiently, Tracy said this, this, is a great advice. Patiently listen and repeat the other's beliefs. Enforce reciprocity. Make them do the same thing. Make them repeat back to you because it's no good if you understand what they're saying but they don't understand what you're saying. Make them listen and repeat too. Clarify definitions. He who defines uncontested wins. If you let them make the definitions, they're going to embed their claims in the definitions and define words in such a way such that they win any debate and any argument before it ever starts. And most of the time, that's where uh, things go afoul right off the bat is with the definitions. Pay very close attention to that. Don't argue in circles. You don't want to be going uh, rabbit chasing, wild goose chasing. So be aware of this because that's exactly what will happen. And as soon as you've got to have some plan to how to deal with that work hard to over-communicate. You need to call attention to these problems. Not just know it in your mind, but you've got to tell them about it and make sure they're thinking about it so they can be aware and working from it. We want to assume that they are honest and give them the benefit of the doubt and give them access to all this attitude and this information as well. And I think this is important, that oftentimes after staying with people, you may find that, okay, I've answered all of your questions, you've answered none of mine, but yet you haven't moved one bit. What's going on? And in their mind, they're thinking, hmm, this person didn't prove their point at all. And there's a complete disconnect between who actually, logically, is, uh, has the truth. And so what I've seen other people do, and I think it's a good idea, is you keep a scorecard. Just have a, you know, two sides or three sides of paper. Here's the verses of, of what this person's saying. Here's the person who's another one says. And when they're answered, scratch through them. And so at the end of the time when you're studying, you can say, look, here's, here's all the things I've answered and here's the things you haven't answered. Make it graphical so they can see that they have not answered the questions. And then prepare silver bullets. You know, Do your homework. Um, this gets back to the idea of not arguing in circles and going all over the place. I, when I first started talking to people about this, I thought I could win people by giving them sheer number of Scriptures. You know, look, all of Scripture is against you. And that doesn't work. Because if if you don't pin them on one verse and they go to the next one and they go to the next one, if they're not convinced by one verse, they're not going to be convinced by a thousand. And then they're going to start to feel, well, look, I'm going to be able to deal with you on this next passage just like I dealt with you on the other ones. You need to find the passages you're most comfortable with that you think are the most effective and hold your ground. And bring out all the little points to show the fact that they are using that inconsistently. So. Alright, now let's talk about the historical argument. There's this presumptive arrogance that's often associated with highly educated Calvinists. It's not true of all Calvinists by any means. I think it's the minority. But if you get into a deep discussion with somebody, they're going to typically be well, uh, well educated. This attitude arises from their idea of associating their belief with historical orthodoxy. The reformed theology. The theology of the reformers. They presume truthfulness based on a consistent belief of the church and reformers since Augustine. And that's your key. What did the Christians believe before Augustine? That's a good question. Would that not be closer to the source of truth and more valuable? If we're going to take history as a proof, why don't we see what happened before Augustine? Alright, I'm not going to begin to go through these. Justin Martyr, unless the human race has the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not accountable for their actions. 100 to 165 AD. Again, rather each man is what he will appear to be through his own faults. Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, we have believed and are saved by voluntary choice. 150 to 211 or 216. Tatian, Rather, we die by our own fault. Nothing evil has been created by God. We ourselves have magnified wickedness, but we who have manifested it are able again to reject it. Uh, Irenaeus 115-202 AD And why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the thing that I will say? All such passages demonstrate the independent will of man. He goes on, he goes on, and he goes on. Most of the people before Augustine believed in the free will of man and they rejected the idea of the inherited depravity of man. So if that's what you're going to operate from, you're on a bad foundation. Alright, now let's talk about the sovereignty of God. I think this is important to realize is they're going to assume that they believe in the sovereignty of God and you don't. If you disagree with them, you don't. And so they, there's this idea of what's called the false middle. They've gone to two extremes. They need to realize that sovereignty of God is not a doctrine exclusive to Calvinism. I agree. It is taught in the Bible. The question is how one or the Bible defines God's sovereignty. He has the authority and right to rule. He has the power and competency to rule. That's not argued. The question is, what is the extent of His exercise of rule? How much does He exercise? How much does He intervene and use that authority? Take, for example, this idea God is in complete control. Well, I agree with that, but what do you mean by he's being in complete control? This is the problem where there's this communicative barriers that we're talking about. He is in complete control, but has he given us any control? If I may, just a quick illustration, maybe you've used this before, but uh, Jesus is a good example of this. The God foregoing some exercise of his authority. When Jesus was going to the cross, he told Peter, we read the other day, that uh, he could call more than twelve legions of angels mm-hmm. to begin, but he, he forwent that, that exercise of power. It uh, mm-hmm. seems like they could see that God may have that absolute authority, power, control. Well, but he doesn't Christians, always exercise But he it. doesn't always exercise it. So what we're saying is there's an assumption here that either God cannot or he will not permit any choices but his own. This is not on their radar. This is not something they're thinking about. I think this is something that you have to point out. It's not a question of his sovereignty or whether or not he exercises it or intervenes. This is the problem of definition. They define sovereignty in this way. And this this gets back to what I was saying. You have to go back to the definitions. Synergism, I'm not going to talk about this. This is a very inflammatory word. It's the idea that God works and we work. Well, that's not really fair. There's some truth to that. But God aids. Man needs aid. God works, man complies. God saves, man accepts. Yes, we are both doing something, but there's, there's no comparison between what God's doing and what we're doing. It's a very inflammatory word. It's a loaded word. Be careful if somebody applies it to you. The Bible idea of God's sovereignty, He's without teacher. He's eternal, transcends time. He cannot be resisted, stopped, or reversed. He has a just rule over creation. You know Isaiah 40, 13-14 and then chapter 43 and chapter 45. Yes, that's not argued. But think about passages like Jeremiah 7.31 where he talks about the sin of the Israelites offering their children uh, to Molech. And he says, that never ever entered my mind. Well, what does that mean? If he is the one who determines all things and he's the one who's made all choices, how can he say this is not something that's entered his mind? Well, obviously God knew that they were going to do that. What is He saying? He's saying it wasn't my intention. It wasn't what I wanted. Well, that's the very thing that Calvinism is teaching. God is choosing all things. He is the one who is wanting and willing things. Uh, He begs man to repent. This is something that the earlier Christians brought up. He sorrows when man fails to repent, despite his efforts and will. Think about Matthew 23:37, him lamenting over Jerusalem. How often I wanted to bring you under my wing, but you were not willing. There's God wanting one thing and man wanting and doing something else. God not getting what he wanted. Well, Calvin's response is, well, that's just the appearance of choice. God's just, um, he's making it appear that way. But there's problems with that. That's deceptive. And that's cruel. Here's God saying, "I think about Moses with the Israelites, I set before you life and death. Choose life. They didn't have a choice. God's just mocking them. He's saying, look, I've given you no, they didn't get a choice. And so there's an inconsistency there within God's being. They say, Well, he has different layers of his will. Well that that creates this inconsistency within this absolute and supreme God. On one hand he wants it, but on one hand he does it. Well, I can answer that. There is an inconsistency there. The inconsistency is in me. So, uh, and then again, where is the scriptural basis for this? Alright, next time we'll talk a little bit more about the foreknowledge and some other things and then hopefully we can finish up too Thank you for your time and attention.